Well, it's nice to be back. Um, we have a we had a little book we used to read our children when they were growing up, and I've forgotten the uh, the name of the book or even the contents of it. But the last line read, "I've been away, but I must say that home looks good to me." And uh, we always think of that when we uh, drive in our in our driveway. Uh, Maui is uh, terrific. But uh, it's good to be back. When we first got there, we, I, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. But uh, somebody told us, you can't walk on the beach at night or you're almost certain to be mugged. So um, I realized that uh, we weren't there yet. Which uh, brings us to our subject this morning, Romans 1, which is all about sin. Uh, someone uh, asked me this past week what I was going to preach on. And I said, sin. And they said, what are you going to say? And uh, I said, well, I'm going to tell them that God is against it. And uh, I'm sure they thought, well, then why is it that you do so much of it? But they didn't say that. They uh, took, uh, took pity on me. Um, as you look around at our society today, I'm sure you, you realize that something has gone wrong. The human race has made and continues to make some big mistakes. And uh, what we're seeing in our time is is an increase in in violence, um, in in wanton vandalism, in crime, unprovoked attacks on the weak and uh, uh, the elderly. And we wonder, what's going wrong? What, what is the, what's the solution to, uh, to what we see around us in, in contemporary society? Are there any answers? When we first moved to, uh, to Boise, we were looking at a house, a house that we ultimately uh, purchased that uh, backs up to uh, Winstead Park. And I was a little bit uneasy because in California, you don't uh, want to live near a park because there's so much uh, drug dealing and vandalism. That's just not the place to live. And so I was... Checking with some of the neighbors uh, the, the uh, condition of the park, and I went across the way and talked to an elderly gentleman that was working in his garden, and I asked him if they had any problem with vandalism at Winstead Park. And he said, oh, no, he says, we don't allow that kind of stuff here in Idaho. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, it's happening. What's the answer? The, the most profound analysis of the problem is found in Romans 1, and along with it, a solution. It's an explanation for why we are the way we are today in Western civilization and what we should do about it. Let's, uh, let's begin reading with uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, Romans 1, 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident among them, or within them, within the human race, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made, so that they are without excuse. It's always difficult to jump right into the middle of a passage like this without understanding what, uh, what goes before. Beginning with verse 8, Paul expresses his intention to come to Rome, the uh, 
great capital city of the Roman Empire and preach the gospel there. He says, I'm eager to do so. As a matter of fact, I'm obligated. And furthermore, he says, I'm not ashamed to preach it there because it's the only thing that can save you. That's what he means by his statement in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The only thing that would stop the decline and ultimate ruin of, of the Roman Empire was the gospel, not education, not their culture, not their art, not their philosophers, their best thinking, but, but the good news about God. And uh, that's why Paul is eager to come to Rome. That's why, in fact, he says he's obligated to preach there. It will save you, he says, if you believe it. And that, of course, is the problem. In verse 16, he says that it's uh, the power of God to everyone who believes. And then he further elaborates in verse 7. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, the righteousness of God is brought into human experience uh, by faith. As you go, as he puts it, from faith to faith, or as the NIV translates, it is by faith from beginning to end. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage, uh, the prophet Habakkuk to corroborate what he's saying. God's way has always been by faith. If you believe what God tells you, the good news from God, it will save you. And it's the only thing, Paul says, that will save you. However, in verse 18, there are some who do not believe it. They suppress it. The wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their righteousness. And then what follows is a description of that unrighteousness. Now, what Paul tells us in this passage is that everyone knows about God. That's clear from even a superficial reading of the passage. This is the answer to that oft-asked question. What about the, uh, the man or the woman in, in the Australian outback who has no opportunity to hear the gospel? who has no way to know God. What can we say about him? Well, what Paul tells us is that no one is in darkness. Everyone has a modicum of truth about God. It's revealed in creation. All you have to do is open your eyes to see it. We're flooded with it. As C.S. Lewis puts it, for those who have eyes to see, every bush is a burning bush. Everything about us reveals the character of God. We're awash in truth about God. It's in us and around us and about us and all over. Well, you can't even swear convincingly without using the name of God. Who ever heard of ripping off a round oath in the name of natural selection or Mother Earth? It just doesn't sound right. Everyone knows about God. He's everywhere revealed. Paul says there are, there are two things that are revealed about God. First, his power, his eternal power. And secondly, his attributes. Uh, as, you, as you look at nature, you see that there are certain laws that govern the universe. Nature is predictable. The sun uh, rises when you expect it to arise. The tides turn when uh, we anticipate uh, their change. There is behind the universe an inexorable power that sees to it that things happen in a predictable fashion. And uh, man can reason from that that there is a power behind the universe. And secondly, we can learn certain things about his character. The word that's translated here in the text divine nature in the New American Standard is a two-word translation of one Greek word 
that means divine attributes. In other words, you can learn a lot about the character of God just by opening your eyes and, and looking around you. We're flooded with truth about God. Paul says, that, that's not a problem. Everyone knows about God if they'll open their eyes. The problem is that God is not revealed. It's that we suppress the revelation of God that we have. We try to hush it up. That's what Paul calls ungodliness in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. By ungodliness, he doesn't mean that men are atheists. It's, it's merely that we act as though God doesn't exist. Everyone believes that God exists. It always strikes me that atheists uh, invade so strongly against the knowledge of God, they must be fighting against something that's very deeply entrenched, against them, uh, entrenched in them. They know. They know. They, they, they're trying to hush it up. They're trying to keep God at, at arm's length. They suppress the truth that they have. That's why people get embarrassed when you're, you're having a casual conversation and you talk about God. Right away they change the subject. They don't want to talk about it. You can use God's name in an oath, but if, if you take him seriously, then people start to get uneasy. That's why you can go through an entire academic curriculum and never hear the name of God mentioned. You can study biology and astronomy and, and physics, disciplines that, that fairly scream at us about the existence of God, and never once hear the name of God mentioned. Or you can read a book like Jacob Bernowski's Ascent of Man, his story of the history of man, and there is not one mention of God anywhere in the book. Nowhere is God honored or extolled or uh, uh, nothing is attributed to him. Man made it all by himself. That's the story of of man. And so what we see around us is a, is a society that knows very well that God exists, knows only too well, but they hush it up. They keep it quiet. They suppress it because they don't want to be responsible. If God exists, then I, I am responsible to him. I'm accountable. I look up at the bench and there's someone there. I have to ultimately answer to him. And that's why people keep it quiet. As Paul goes on to, exp uh, to explain, something begins to happen to a society that, that suppresses the, the truth. Uh, Bronowski notwithstanding, their man begins to descend instead, instead of ascend. Paul says in verse 19, though they, though, uh, because that which is known about God, oh, excuse me, verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They don't attribute any worth to him. They don't value the knowledge of God. They don't worship him or, or, or love him. They don't permit little children to sing songs about God in school or to sing Christmas carols or to read the Bible or to pray. And they don't give him thanks. Have you ever stopped to think that we are dependent upon God for, for the next breath that we draw. God could extinguish our life just like that if he chose. The fact that he is, has chosen not to is an act of, of divine grace, and yet we forget to give him thanks. He gives us the minds and the bodies that we use to, uh, to gain wealth and position in, in this world, and, and we never stop to thank him. 
we, we don't stop to worship him and give him honor. And then, furthermore, the next step in verse 21, we become futile in our speculations and our foolish minds are darkened. Man can't live without ideals, and so he substitutes the truth of God for, for, for the thinking of man, which Paul describes as futile, fruitless speculation. We, we don't trust God in his thinking. We don't believe God and his word. We listen to the word of, of secular psychiatrists and philosophers and, and thinkers, and, and, and we trust them. And, and Paul says the problem is their thinking doesn't work. It's unfruitful. It doesn't heal the hurts of society. It doesn't heal relationships and put uh, broken marriages back, back together. It doesn't take away the guilt that we experience. And uh, ultimately, Paul says, professing to be wise, we become fools. A kind of craziness sets in that causes us to do all sorts of, of strange things, to believe that somehow we'll be healed by going out of the, into the desert and and uh, primal screaming or some, some such uh, activity. And the ultimate tomfoolery, according to, to Paul, is that we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The uh, Egyptians, for all of their culture, ended up worshiping dung beetles. Paul says, that's how far our folly will take us. We do foolish things. And, and the ultimate uh, foolishness is to worship the creation instead of the creator. We worship things and animals and bugs and creepy crawly things and insects and attribute worth and honor to them. That shows how foolish we become. Now, we don't do that today. At least our idolatry is not that blatant. But we still worship things, cars, money, guns, tanks, and power, and youth, and health, and, and beauty, and people. We worship uh, political figures, and, and media personalities, movie uh, actors and actresses, and philosophers, and, and their ideas. And that's all humanism is, basically. It's the exaltation of, of man. And the irony is, as Paul goes on to point out, that when we worship man instead of God, we dishonor man. That kind of idolatry doesn't dishonor God. It dishonors man. And as Paul says, we end up degrading ourselves. And notice how Paul argues in verse 24. Therefore, this is as a consequence of this exchange, worshiping the, the creation instead of the, of the creature. God gave them over. Three times in the rest of this passage, we're told that God gives us up. Now, notice he does not say God gives up on us. That's not what Paul is saying. It's that God gives us up. He lets us go. He takes his hands off of us and lets us reap what we sow. There is a law of inevitable consequence, which, which is, is always effective. It always works. And God, in effect, says, well, if, if you want to live without God, if you want to entrust yourself to men and their ideas, if you want to live for things, then I'll, I'll let you do that. And so he, he takes his hands off of us, and he lets us go. Three times in this passage, like a bell tolling, Paul says, God gives them up. 
He gives them up. Now, this is what Paul means when he said earlier, meant when he said earlier, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. We're inclined to think of the wrath of God as some future thing when God comes back and and judges the world. But the verb is present. The wrath of God is presently now being revealed, Paul says. And secondly, the wrath of God is not uh, now being revealed in immediate acts of judgment. Lightning bolts uh, flashing out of the sky or fire and brimstone being poured out on the human race. The way the wrath of God is being expressed is God simply lets us go. He lets us have what we want. Takes his hands off of us and lets us experience the, the full consequences of our folly. Now what follows is a description of what happens to culture to a civilization when all the restraints are removed, when God takes away the inhibiting forces in society and lets us have our way, certain things begin to happen. And I think uh, what we have here are essentially the marks of a decadent society, marks of a civilization that has decided to go it alone without God. Now listen, verse 24. Therefore, it is because they made this exchange, because they worshiped the creation, rather than the creature, uh, the creation and, and the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts or the desires or the passions, the pursuit of something more, this insatiable desire for something to satisfy us. Paul recognizes that, that when we take God of our li- out of our life, there is an enormous vacuum that's created that we try to fill. Now, the word lust is not always used uh, to refer to sexual passions. Here it just means unsatisfied passions of any sort. So that in the, in the passions, the inordinate desires of our heart, we end up in impurity. He says, God gives them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among themselves. They begin to violate their own bodies and cheat themselves, exploit themselves. For they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The lie is uh, the lie that Satan introduced into the world, uh, the, the lie that he presented to Eve that uh, says you can live without God. You can be God yourself. You can find joy and happiness and satisfaction <coughs> apart from the creator of, of the universe. That's the lie. Paul says, because they have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, he gives them over to impurity. Now, the first mark of a a decadent society is sexual immorality. It becomes rampant, everywhere seen. Now, we mustn't understand that sexual immorality is is the worst kind of sin. It's not. Uh, I don't know where it belongs in a scale of 1 to 10, but according to Scripture, the worst sins are, are uh, pride and uh, uh, intolerance and the, and the sins of the Spirit. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, has a good summation of, of this principle. Finally, he says, though I uh, have had to speak at length about sex, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, 
but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power and hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the uh, which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. The diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. Uh, Lewis is right. Um, sex is not the worst sin. But what sex does is reveal the animal side of man. And there's another side, the diabolical side, which is far worse, as Lewis puts it. But when God gives us up to sexual immorality, we begin to show how bestial we can become. We become beasts. And that's all people think about. You listen to what, what most people in our, in our culture today talk about, most men especially. They don't talk about ideas and how to redeem society and how to set things right. They talk about the sexual conquests that they've made, the uh, victories that they've, uh, that they've accomplished. Those are the sorts of things that preoccupy them in their thinking. And God just lets us go. So we begin to see that uh, if we're going to worship their creation, if we're going to worship animals, then that's exactly what we'll become. We'll become like beasts. That's the first mark of a decaying society. Widespread sexual immorality. The second, according to Paul in verses 26 and 27, is rampant homosexuality. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading or dishonorable passions. For even their women. There's a very deft touch that Paul has in and this uh, translation generally does not show up in any of our translations. But what Paul says is that even women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Women seem to have a, uh, an intuitive sense of the proper use of their sexuality. Uh, we men need to be instructed and helped. But women seem to know. It seems to be instinctive almost. And Paul's point is that when even women give up the natural use of sex for that which is unnatural, something has gone wrong with that society. And in the same way, in verse 27 also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts or shameless acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Uh, this is the second mark of a decaying society whenever homosexuality is, is accepted and condoned and widely practiced. Now, we need to understand what Paul is saying. He's very delicate, very careful in the way in which he expresses these ideas, and we need to be also. He's also very compassionate because, as we'll see, the wrath of God is ultimately a redemptive thing. But we do need to understand that homosexuality is a sin. We do no one a favor when we tell them that they are, they're gay because of some biological predisposition to gayness. That simply is not true. Uh, there may be very rarely, very, very rarely, that sort of predisposition. But it is basically a moral choice, which Paul says is unnatural. And he describes it as a degrading passion. 
Now, as with uh, heterosexual immorality, homosexuality is not the worst sin. We need to understand that. Again, spiritual pride is by far a worse sin. Uh, but homosexuality is the most degrading thing that one can do to his or, or her body. Uh, with adultery and fornication, we act like beasts. But in homosexuality, we sink lower than beasts because even the animals don't practice homosexuality. I've, I've been told by people who are defending their position as gays that some animals do, but that simply isn't that true. What... what God is demonstrating in a society when he, when he takes his hands off of them and lets them go is that we can sink down and down and down even below the level of, of animal life. Even animals know better. That's what Paul is saying. Now, the sad thing, as Paul puts it, is that ultimately the homosexual receives in his own person the due penalty of the error. The, the word that Paul uses means uh, back pay. There is, a, there is a consequence in the unsatisfied longings that, uh, that you see in the gay community, in the physical and emotional and, and spiritual disintegration that takes place, in the, the awfulness and the ugliness of an elderly, hardcore homosexual. Uh, as most of you know, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area for years, and I've seen it. I know what it's like. I know what the ultimate uh, experience is. And it's just as Paul describes it. There are terrible, terrible consequences. Now, we should never, never uh, be gleeful. Uh, I heard someone say the other day on the radio that, that clearly uh, this terrible disease, AIDS, is the punishment of God upon homosexuals. And perhaps it is. But, but we should never be happy about that or gleeful. It's a tragic thing. And uh, also, if, if there are people here who are homosexual, you need to know that, that our Lord does not despise you, and neither do we. We love you, and we want to help. The only way out is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and the knowledge that his divine power will save you. There's no other way out. We never help any homosexual by defending their position on the basis of some biological quirk or some anatomical difference or uh, some, some psychological predisposition. As Paul puts it, it's unnatural. It's sin. And the only way out is through repentance and belief. There can be deliverance through our Lord. I've seen it happen. It, it, there, it's, an, it's a struggle. And it hurts. And often there's a, there's a lot of failure. But there can be deliverance if we understand the nature of the, of the sin and how to handle it. Now, uh, the third mark of a decadent society is given to us in verses 28 and, uh, and following to the end of the, of the chapter. Paul writes, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, that is, to a base, a vulgar mind, an unacceptable mind, to do those things which are not proper. That is, even those things that, are, uh, that the secular society recognizes are improper. Being filled with all unrighteousness. That's the summary statement from which all these, this, this description flows. It's describing our cities, filled with unrighteousness. And what Paul is talking about here is... Uh, 
is probably the ultimate degradation of society. The, as I see these uh, statements God gave them, over, they're not sequential. One does not depend upon the other. All are based upon the fact that we exchange the truth for the lie. Uh, the first mark of that sort of thing is widespread sexual immorality, which we see around us today, and rampant homosexuality. And the third is a devaluation of human life. Human life becomes junk. It's worthless. People are valueless. We don't, we don't accord them honor. Uh, we degrade them in the value of their lives. We exploit them and use them for our own selfish advantage. And that's what Paul is describing when he says our cities are filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, spite. They're gossips. Literally whisperers behind the back. Slanderers. Haters of God. Strident haters of God. Who never did them harm? Who wants only good for them? Insolent. Uh, the word is used in, in classical Greek literature for those who are uh, so uh, pleased with themselves because of their power and their position and their physical attractiveness that they treat, treat others with disdain and, and scorn. Arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. They're ingenious and inventive in the types of evil that they, uh, uh, that they uh, commit. Disobedient to parents, rebellious, uh, guilty of rebellion against parents. Without understanding, that is, they're unsympathetic. Untrustworthy, treacherous, uh, unloving. Paul uses an interesting word here. Uh, it's the word which, which C.S. Lewis describes as a lack of duck love. Uh, duck love, the Greek word is storge, and this is the negated form of it. They don't even have storge. Uh, storge is the love that, that people feel, the, the kind of natural affection that you have for small, warm, cuddly things like little ducks and little puppies and little children. And I think this is why we're seeing today an increase in child abuse and in abortion, because we have lost the love of little cuddly things. We don't even have that natural affection that the human race normally has for things that are small and cute and, and lovable. It shows how, how hard and how coarse, how rude society has become. Unmerciful. And... Far worse in verse 32. You can see what Paul is doing. He's, he's accumulating evidence progressively. He's indicting the human race and uh, doing it through a series of statements, each of which is, is far more serious than the one before. In verse 32, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice. That's, that's the worst thing of all. Not only do they know that they are damned, but they, they, they want to damn others. They want to take them along with them. Paul says they know. They know that what they do is, is worthy of death. No one has to tell them. They don't have to be convinced of their, of their guilt. They know. The, the whole human race uh, has written on its heart a moral law. We know that, that, in, that certain things are right, fair play and, and courtesy and, 
and courage and honor and, and integrity and trustworthiness and, and truthfulness. Those are things that we know are right and, and good. And we know that when people violate that moral code, there ought to be some consequences. We say things to people that indicate we, we believe that. When someone does something uh, against us, we say, you shouldn't do that. You ought not to do that. Well, what, on what basis? There's a moral law. Sometimes we say there, there ought to be a law against that sort of thing because we know that people should behave in certain ways and should not behave in other ways. We know, Paul says. But even knowing we violate our conscience and we condone what other people do so they will violate their conscience. That's why evil men invade our, our educational system. That's why they dominate the media. That's why they try to legalize evil of, of all sorts. Paul says that's the worst thing of all. They know that what they're doing calls for the death penalty. But they do it anyway, and they applaud others who, who do the same. Paul says they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, Paul has a rather heavy hand. You can see it as you read through this passage. And we look at this and we say, oh, but that's not me. That's not me. But if you read on through the rest of, uh, of the chapter, <coughs> chapter 2 and chapter 3, the rest of this unit, you'll see that uh, Paul is leading us all to one conclusion, which he states in the third chapter, verse 23. All have sinned and have missed the beauty of God's plan. Even those of us who may not do all of these things are guilty of some. And, you know, and though we may not be guilty of them in, in, in our actions, we're guilty of them in our thoughts. And we know it. Everyone is sinful. No one is excluded. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It affects us throughout the, the, the course of our life from beginning to end. As David puts it in Psalm 51... I was conceived in sin. Now, he doesn't mean there's anything sinful about conception. He's simply saying that in his origins, he was sinful. When he came out of the womb, he was already sinful. Selfish, self-centered, inclined to manipulate and exploit and use others for his own, uh, own self-interest. Uh, that's what theologians describe as original sin. When they say that uh, we have original sin, they don't mean that we're very original in the ways that we sin. We aren't. They just mean that we're sinful in our origins. We're, we come into the world like a baseball with a spin on it. And sooner or later we break away from God. It just takes a little time. What are we doing? Bar none. No one's excluded. It's the way we come into the world. There's a second term that theologians use to describe us. They say that we are totally depraved. And that turns a lot of people off, I know. But you need to understand what they're saying. They don't mean that we are as sinful as we could be. No one is as sinful as he or she could be. But uh, it just means that, that sin touches the totality of our experience. That, that we are tinged in some way in every area of our life by sin. If sin were blue, it would be some color of blue all over, some shade of blue all over. That's what they mean. So that not only do we come into the world sinful and our whole life is lived out as a sinful being... But it touches the totality of our experience. We're selfish, self-governed beings 
who really do not want God fooling around with our life. And that's all of us. We're all right there. And, and there's no end to what we can do. Even things we, can, we would never suspect. There's an interesting character in the Old Testament. His name is Haziel. He became one of the kings of Syria. Succeeded a man named Ben-Hadad, who was notorious in history for his violence. He met the prophet Elisha, and Elisha said to, to him, Haziel, you're going to succeed Ben-Hadad. Actually, Haziel had come to find out if, his, uh, if, the, if the king, Ben-Hadad, would survive an illness. And Elijah, Elisha said, no, no, he won't. As a matter of fact, you will succeed him. And then Isaiah began to, or Elisha began to stare at him and weep. And Haziel uh, was embarrassed. And he said, why are you weeping? And he said, what I see is that you will conquer kingdoms. You will dash children's heads against the rock. You will rip up pregnant women. And he went on describing the horrible things that Haziel would do. And he couldn't believe it. He said, I would never do a thing like that. Elisha saw it. And God sees it. He knows our hearts. He knows what we're capable of. There's only one way out. Education doesn't do anything for us. It just makes us a little more, uh, a little more ingenious in our wickedness. Taking vows doesn't help. Uh, for myself, I don't even think that hellfire and damnation... Uh, Sermons help a great deal because Paul tells us that we know we deserve death. No one has to tell us that. I think what God does is just take his hands off us and let us go. And let us wreck our health and destroy our marriages and ruin our businesses. Break up our relationships. Just go through life leaving a trail of wreckage until we come to our senses. And we realize that only God can save us. That's why I say the wrath of God is redemptive. God is not just judging punitively. He's judging redemptively. He, he lets us have what we want so we'll come to our senses. He lets us hurt ourselves so he can heal us. And then when we turn around, God is there. And we discover what Mary learned from the angel, that, that his name is Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. There's only one who can save us, and that's Jesus. He died for us. He paid the penalty for our sin. It's not held against us. As I said three weeks ago, the, the one sin that's held against us is the sin of unbelief. That's the only sin from which we cannot be forgiven because it's the only, it's the only uh, way to be saved is to believe in what Jesus has done. And that's why Jesus said to uh, a group of people just like us who were burdened and Burdened down by guilt and heavy laden by the mistakes and errors of the past and the, the things that we had done to others. He said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That is the yoke of submission to his lordship. Slip under the yoke with him. And learn from me because I'm gentle and humble. He's tolerant with the weak. He's patient with those who are struggling. And he says, you'll find rest for your souls. It's the only way out. It's the only way out. There is no other name, as Peter puts it, written among men by which you must be saved, except Jesus. Let's pray.
This passage has a very condemning, damning effect upon us all. But uh, its purpose is not to take away our hope, but rather to lead us to the one who gives hope, who gives us relief. And as Paul goes on to say in the book of, of Romans, he is our expiation for sin. He is the one who justifies us, who declares us righteous. It's by his death and resurrection that we're brought into a proper relationship with God. And all we have to do to be saved from our sins is to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Make me the man that I, or woman that I long to be. It's a mere, it's a mere act of faith. Simple request, putting yourself in his hands, betting your life that this is, the, this is the answer. You can do that this morning. Would you pray with me? If you've never prayed this prayer before, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying for me. Come into my life now as Savior and Lord. Give me the power to be what you've called me to be. Thank you for coming into my life. Lord, we do deeply thank you this morning for, for who you are and for what you've done. We realize on the basis of this passage that a thankless heart can lead us into almost anything. And it's the intention of our life to honor you as God to respond to the revelation that we have. We thank you for providing salvation freely, not because we deserve it, but out of your unlimited grace. We thank you for that and for the forgiveness from guilt and for the power to live as whole men and women. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.